This is the Education Gadfly Show. I mean, look, I, I have a lot of crazy ideas. David gets to hear about them on a regular basis. I may put some in. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, the original Education Gadfly, Checker Finn. Yo, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) Great entrance, Checker. That was great. And also joining us, the straight man, David Griffith. Uh, Yeah, yo. Uh, Yo, yo, yo. Uh, Checker, for those of you that don't know, of course you know, he's our distinguished (laughs) senior fellow and president emeritus. At the Fordham Institute, Checker, welcome back. Becoming more and more here. emeritus with every passing month. Oh, now, come on. Come on now. Well, it is true. We are We're coming up years. on five years five since years. you passed the baton. Yes. Yeah. And you're still holding it. You, you get, Checker actually gave me a baton, but instead of giving me the kind of baton that you would have in a track meet, he gave me the kind of baton that you twirl. Yeah. Cheerleader. <laughs> just, just to be funny, I hope it wasn't that you didn't get the sports reference. I sort of know it. It has to do with relay races. <laughs> there you go. Hey, speaking of relay races, tomorrow uh, we have a, a big swimming event in the greater uh, Bethesda, Maryland area. Ooh. Checkers granddaughters swimming against my sons. Very exciting. It's a small world. They don't get in the same events though, do they? They don't. They don't. But uh, yes, I, I understand you won't be there, but I will I will root for the Finn girls. Uh, since they're not in the same events with your boys. Exactly. That's fine. That okay. name is auspicious, I have to say. Uh, what's that? Finn? Finn? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you think so? Better than Petrelli. Uh, yes, for swimming. That's true. I, I did name my sons thinking they might be soccer stars someday. That does not seem to be the, the case. But I had always thought that, you know, Leandro Petrelli with the goal. It sounded pretty good. But it uh, sounds so okay. What? We yeah, named the grandchildren largemouth and smallmouth. Oh, goodness gracious. All right. We better get to education reform uh, before everybody hangs up on us. So let's do it in Ed Reform Update. All right, Checker, uh, I was about to say, in Head Reform Update, what we're going to talk about is an important uh, milestone uh, this week, a historical milestone 50 years ago, America and the Moonshot. You've got some thoughts about this and how it relates to education. Yeah, I do. It's uh, an anniversary, obviously, of the Moonshot, which was uh, one of the glorier uh, moments of that part of the 20th century for Americans, uh, but it was also part of an evolving uh, moment, uh, a decade really, in education. Uh, and it has a lot to do with uh, John F. Kennedy at both ends, actually, on both, on, on both points. Uh, within a couple of months of Kennedy declaring in 1961 that we were going to get to the moon within the decade, uh, he also proposed a brand new program of federal aid education, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, began to actually came to pass under LBJ if, uh, in 1965. Uh, but this was all both the moonshot and the education stuff were an outgrowth of our kind of Cold War panic over things like Sputnik and get, catching up with the Russians, both technologically and in space, obviously, but also in science and education and this anxiety uh, in the in the depths of the Cold War, uh, that America had fallen behind, Sputnik being the symbol of that, of course. Mm-hmm. So this this triggered a widespread interest in the United States and shared in Congress to a degree by President Eisenhower and then big time by, by, by Kennedy and Johnson um, in uh, upgrading science and technology and education. Mm-hmm. And I think they're... Uh, 
they sort of spring from the same seed. You know, you've you've used this Sputnik analogy over the years. I remember uh, not too long ago, you were hoping that we were going to have another Sputnik moment. In I was, I was. It did not come to pass. Uh, you know, look, other countries, they get their PISA results back and it causes... It's called this, PISA shock in Germany. Yeah, and, and then they get uh, moving on a new agenda. That has not been the case for many years here. There seems to be uh, PISA and ed reform fatigue instead, but... I mean, I, just to go back even to 50 years ago, I mean, do you think it was legitimate that uh, people saw the the Soviet domination in the early years of the space uh, program, the space race? I mean, in, in pinning that on education, like we look back on those years and we think, boy, our schools were a lot better back then. I mean, <laughs> what, I mean, is this unfair to try to link these two, do you think? Uh, I don't think it's unfair to try to link them because I do really think the same seed led to both sprouts in the United States. Uh, however, I'm right in the middle of the Douglas Brinkley's really fine new book on on the moonshot. Uh, and it includes the revelation to me, I wasn't to a lot of other people, that the whole missile gap thing that Kennedy talked so much about when he was campaigning for the presidency was simply wrong. The United States had far more ICBMs than the Russians did at that yeah. point. Uh, and it was, um, and, and Eisenhower had done a whole lot of things in private that uh, were still confidential and classified at that point that actually gave America quite a lot of advantages in the Cold War. Um, but uh Nevertheless, the symbolic effect of the Russians first getting a satellite up and then sending up a live creature first, a dog that sadly died after a few days in the Russian satellite, uh, and then sending up their cosmonaut before we were able to get any human being into space. Uh, These were catalytic events on the national psyche, and um, whether we were had a had a defense problem or not, uh, we certainly had a perception problem that we were kind of losing this this propaganda thing. As for the schools, they didn't they weren't as no they weren't bad they were but they got better after the Sputnik crisis and National Defense Education Act and a bunch of other things that brought some attention to them. Yeah, and and the focus then was uh, you know. After Sputnik, wasn't it mostly on the excellence gap? It was on this concern about gifted kids, a lot of interesting gifted programs, and science, foreign language, and science, science foreign right. language and science. Yeah. yeah and I'm, then later, you know, but then you get to Kennedy and Johnson mm-hmm. and, and the elementary and secondary, the kids. It talks about equity, right? There was a shift in gears in terms of what the money, the federal money was going to be used for between the NDEA and the yeah. elementary and secondary act. There was. And to be clear, we now are talking a lot about how we combine these two, including for poor kids who themselves are gifted and high achieving and how to make sure that we nurture their talents. But, it, you know, people have often said that we swing and vacillate between this equity right. issue and the excellence issue as well. Well, Well, we definitely vacillate, Mike. But I mean, look, my question is, I mean, it seems almost like what Checker is describing is the invention of education reform, right? I mean, and that's probably not true. I'm Mm -hmm. guessing there's, I mean, in fact, I know there's plenty of ed reforms that predate that. But I guess my question is, I I mean, aren't we doing this all the time now? We being the education reform industry, like, I, I feel like if we were to say, hey, guess what? We have a problem with our schools. People would say, yes, we know, right? You're constantly telling us. Uh, I think it was more the invention of a federal role in doing something about education, which really hadn't happened much before this. Uh, You'd have to go back to the GI Bill, which was post-secondary, or the Smith-Hughes Act, which was Levoke Ed. Uh, The federal role in K-12 
education was not very evident until the Sputnik era. I don't think it was so much a discovery of a school crisis as it was a kind of national panic about the general state of the nation, uh, which included the, uh, schools. Yeah, the schools along with everything else. But I do wonder, I, I feel like part of the narrative was that we were very proud to have been the first country to have universal public education and to have expanded high school education so dramatically. So I don't know. It just seems like there were some years in there where that was a, a point of pride for the country. It was. I mean, it was and, complicated. It's also just a few years after the Brown decision. I mean, the whole desegregation yeah. thing is just beginning to be underway. I remember I'm in school at this point. I'm 13 years old or something at the at time of Sputnik. Sputnik. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and by the time of the moonshot, you're in the White House, right? Uh, well, that's true. I was actually working there when Nixon got on the phone with, uh, with those guys and congratulated them. Uh, I'm not certain that Nixon deserved that um, honor because he was brand new in the White House and hadn't done much to get the to get us there. But he nevertheless took took full credit. All right. So 50 years forward, here we are. uh, And there's, of course, lots of people talking about what all the moonshot means. We here at Fordham, along with some partners at the Center for American Progress, have our own moonshot competition going. We've got this moonshot for kids initiative where we're encouraging people to send in their ideas for big uh, even expensive ways to move the education system forward. And people can apply for that by August 1st. At least that's our deadline right now. Uh, we're not saying by the end of the decade, we're saying by the end of this month. Uh, <laughs> and we want ideas on how to move things forward. And look, this is part of trying to bring attention to the notion that if we want to make big progress in education, like we did once upon a time in space travel, we need serious uh, R&D. We, we need some big ideas. And we need to put some muscle behind it. I agree. Crazy ideas. Crazy. Not totally crazy. They ought to be at least plausible, but big. I I think crazy would be okay. I mean, look, I I have a lot of crazy ideas. David gets to hear about them on a regular basis. I may put some in myself. Am I allowed to compete? As long as you put it in under an assumed name. Okay, maybe I'll I'll try that. Look, I, I there is uh it it's been a, a slog. I mean, here was this moonshot. It, it is amazing. It's inspiring because it happened and we succeeded, and it happened in a brief amount of time. And you think about the technology back then and how the heck did they figure it out? And uh, and here in education, it just feels like we go round and round, and things get maybe a little better or a little worse, but it doesn't change a whole lot. And the question is: Is there something that you know, the old parlance was it's a game changer. Uh, we'll call it now a moonshot. Uh, but that, uh, you know, maybe something that goes around the system, something that uh, technology that makes most teachers suddenly dramatically more effective. I don't know. What is it? Uh, or maybe we will have to just admit and acknowledge that it's always going to be a slog because we're talking about people and kids and, and this very difficult challenge of trying to help these illiterate, uh, uncivilized five-year-olds transform themselves into people who can go off and succeed in post-secondary education and be uh, engaged citizens. That's hard. If we could get those kids out of the air that we breathe and into the beyond the stratosphere, like uh, um, on a rocket, maybe it would make a difference. Yeah. It sounds better than silver bullet uh, contest. I'll say that. So moonshot it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, here's an idea. Maybe as we think about travel to Mars, you know, we think about, okay, we're going to have to put people on those spaceships and they're going to be there for lots of years, right? So if we include kids while they're traveling, we can think about how to improve their education while traveling to Mars. That, that, 
Is that you potential? It. You nailed it. <laughs> it's as good a plan as any. Gravity-free education. That's the answer. All right. Well, in all seriousness, do check out our Moonshot for Kids competition. Also, uh, Checker's musings on all of this uh, that will be coming out soon at the 74. Uh, Checker, thanks as always for joining us. Always happy to do. See you soon. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Are, are you excited about the 50th anniversary of the Moonshot? I am, actually. Yes, I was I was reading. I mean, I was listening to uh, History Channel the other day and sort of the, the lost tapes, you know? Yeah. Have you seen this stuff? And, you know, what we thought, what, anyway, all this stuff went wrong we didn't know anything about, yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, if you, of course, believe that <laughs> yeah, it <I> even <laughs> happened. I was going to do it, but yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, Amber, and, and by the way, we were just talking about our Moonshot for Kids initiative yes. that we've got going with the Center for American Progress. Do you, you think about putting any ideas in? Yourself? Oh, man, that is a tough question. I'm not, not really. Not, not yet. Know. You just missed a, a, a great one I Did came I? up with. Well, it's related to, you know, once we send kids to Mars and beyond uh-huh. that we have an opportunity to improve the way they are educated on the way there. On the it's way there. It's a literal moonshot. A literal moonshot. Where they're, saying, <laughs> they're in the spaceship in their little pods and we have them listen to educational wow. podcasts. And guess what? Wow. That would probably work better than that what we're doing is now. something. And they're not with their parents, right? We're just sending them out on their well, own. Their parents are there in, oh, in pods are, next to them. Oh, oh another pod. Okay, yeah, got it. Know. How long is this going to take to get to Mars? It's like years, right? We don't know. I, I, I'm turning that, you down. I'm, I'm not finally that kind of, yeah, giving research, you a chance to research speak. must know. <laughs> research knows everything. All right. I digress. All right. What you got for us, Amber? We got a new study by UC Irvine that examines the impact of restorative justice disciplinary practices in Pacific City Schools. Can somebody tell me where Pacific City Schools? Where is, is this? Re- this is real? They didn't make that up? No, it's for real. Well, I was going to say New Jersey, but that's the okay. wrong coast. Like, so It might be in Oregon, David. Like, you've never heard of this place? Are you sure it's not California? I thought so. It has so. to be California. All right. The 90% Empire. of the anyway, West Coast is California. Do you want to believe that it was not in the paper? Like, I looked. And then I Googled Pacific City Schools and something in Oregon come up. And it came up. Anyway, huh. I digress. Um, it's a case study in Pacific City Schools. Uh, lots of interest in restorative justice. Research base, obviously, is slowly growing, but this is adding to it. Do we need a reminder of what this is? Repairing the harm done between the perpetrator and the victim, often through mediation, seeks to build community. Okay. Yep. Now, and, and of course, we talk about this in terms of both schools That's as right. an alternative traditional discipline, but there's yes. also a way in that people justice. do this yes. in criminal justice, right? right? But in schools, okay. it mainly involves like restorative circles with the kid and maybe if there was a fight, you know, putting them together and also mm-hmm. just the larger community trying to figure out how we hold each other responsible for positive behavior. Okay. okay. Um, in this case, it involved coaching and also a restorative justice coordinator to help imp- implement it in schools. So this is an expert in restorative justice that was brought in through a partnership with the Alliance for Restorative Communities, mm-hmm. which is a nonprofit that is an expertise mm-hmm. in this thing. Okay. Restorative justice. So, this is like done right, right? Like yep. we think, or, you know, they actually have somebody on staff there. All right. Uh, it's not clear how many schools took part. Crazy. Couldn't find that either. Uh, but it was a staggered rollout. They used student level data from 2007 to 2017, demographic, academic, disciplinary data. Schools are classified as RJ, what must work short term is, if they have a coordinator. 
and they made some procedural changes to implement this new approach. Uh, they're looking at whether or not the student was suspended in a given year. They're looking at racial differences and exposure to RJ. They use a difference in differences approach, examine difference in suspension rates before and after the implementation of RJ, and compare this difference with the differences in suspension rates observed in schools that did not implement RJ over the same time period. Okay, mm-hmm. looking at kids within the same school before and after implementation, mm-hmm. school fixed effects, year fixed effects. All right. Same pre-level trends, blah, blah, blah. Findings. Across schools that implement RJ, there is a relatively uniform decrease in suspensions. Mm -hmm. In schools with RJ, only 2.5% of students are suspended compared with 5.1% in non-RJ schools. This is about a 2.6 percentage point change that represents a 51% decrease Mm -hmm. in the suspension rate overall. As far as race differences, white students benefited most from RJ. Though the percentage point differences are small, they are statistically significant and relative to the base rate, the reduction is 62% for white kids. Reduction Hispanic suspensions are not statistically significant, but still a reduction nonetheless around 55%. For black students, the decrease is very slight. It barely registers and it's not statistically significant. And looking at outcomes, whether they vary by how long the school has implemented RJ, okay? They find a steady decline in the suspension rates of white students with schools in their third year or more, showing a 4.42 percentage point lower than the non-RJ schools. Suspension rates for Hispanic kids follow that declining pattern as well, but not statistically significant. Mm -hmm. In contrast, changes in black students' rates are not significant but they nonetheless suggest increases in year one and two before beginning to decrease in year three. Moreover, though not significant, the gap in suspension rates between white and black students widens over time. That's a lot. But in sum, just so you can get all that together, decreases for white students occurring relatively quickly at a slower pace for Hispanic students and remaining stagnant for black students. Finally, relative to the time that a student was exposed to RJ, all right? Similar patterns. The trend is positive for white students after three or more years, but fluctuates for Hispanic students. While for black students, they're more more likely to be suspended in their first year of exposure to RJ. That improves later, but remains statistically insignificant. They think, well, maybe it's because we don't have enough black students exposed to RJ for three or more years, perhaps. It's not what, what people wanted, right? Or intended from an effort like this. Um, The takeaways from the analyst, all right, we can debate these um, or not, say that RJ was implemented for race-specific reasons, but the handbook and all the materials that they looked at when they did their qualitative review had no, you know, didn't have anything about that. It was race-neutral, it was colorblind, and they were saying it makes it difficult for schools to improve uh, the, you know, the, the outcomes they're looking at for minority students when, you know, that's not even mentioned in the literature as a, as a, as a goal. Um, and then they also say that the schools have too much discretion to use RJ um, since it's embedded within the existing system. So in other words, it's not a replacement, but it's an alternative. And apparently schools have discretion as to whether or not they're going to use this particular approach with particular kids or mm-hmm. situations or um, uh, incidents. Wow. Okay. All right. Lots. So not a ringing endorsement for restorative justice advocates, at least in terms of its ability to reduce these disparities. It may widen the disparities, but it does raise a lot of questions. I mean, the first thing that stands out to me is that only 5% of kids were getting suspended uh, in the non-RJ schools, which sounds like not that many compared to, you know, we we certainly see uh, anecdotes and some data that there are schools out there where 
10, 20, 30, 40% of the kids are getting suspended in a mm-hmm. given year. And so it just makes me wonder about these schools. I mean, are these pretty affluent schools? To well, I mean, the, the ones, I mean, they? the ones who were targeted for RJ are mm-hmm. the ones obviously that are more troubled, disadvantaged. Okay. Yes. And, and I also wonder, uh, you know, are the African-American kids, you know, disproportionately in higher poverty schools? Mm-hmm. So in other words, you know, I, I guess they try to control for all this stuff. Right. But, for SES, they did control. For you know, it's, it, I mean, we certainly have seen discipline reform play out very differently in more affluent schools mm-hmm. than in higher poverty schools, right? That in more affluent schools, uh, you know, people can say, well, okay, we can get by without suspending so many kids and it's not so much of a challenge. We don't have that many disruptive kids or that much disruption. We figured out, you know, in a higher poverty school, if it's one where there's a lot more disruption, a lot more kids coming to school with uh, challenges and that, that mm-hmm. result in poor behavior, mm-hmm. it's harder. Right. It's a lot harder, right? right? But they and, might not have the supports is what you're they, Yeah, what you're they need, I mean, one coordinator is not going to, Mm-hmm. not going right. to do it. Right. And that's a point that analysts made too as All well. Right. Yep. So mm-hmm. I, I, know, I just wonder, I mean, I assume that, you know, if, if this Pacific, what's it called? Pacific, Pacific City? City. If this is a true place. I mean, that, that <laughs> if it's like most places Somewhere in, America, in the West Coast. Right? Yes. I mean, these, these groups of kids are, are not perfectly <laughs> distributed across schools. I mean, there's right. probably right. some mm-hmm. concentration of African-American kids in the higher poverty schools and that that could be a, a big part of the issue here. Right. Right. Yeah, I guess the only thing I would really add is, I mean, I think there is this sort of weird turn that no matter where people are on the on the spectrum of discipline reform or skepticism from arguing for against suspensions to mm-hmm. disproportionality, right? And yeah. so without, there's just this, like all this, this, this sort of weird assumption that like, you know, if we reduce suspensions, we're reducing disproportionality mm-hmm. when in fact, actually you're probably increasing it if you reduce suspensions, you know, uniformly across right. groups, yeah. right? And um. And then, yeah, I mean, it just doesn't, it just doesn't follow, right? We have to separate these two conversations somehow. And, right. and, um, anyway, I mean, I just, I'm not, I'm not at all surprised, right? Yeah. Um, I, it doesn't necessarily follow that the, that the intervention did harm, right? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. just, I think we, you know, we just have to mm-hmm. have to have conversation, talk about the thing that we're really talking about, mm-hmm. right? Instead of this sort yeah. of weird bank shot where we, mm-hmm. we you know. We did. We don't like disproportionality. Therefore, suspensions are bad. That's like yeah. a non sequitur, right? right? I mean, you can now say we don't like disproportionality, so restorative justice is bad. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. You could, you could I mean, say you could, no. You could say that. I mean, yeah, it's, right. it's 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 right. That's actually a pretty good illustration of right. how bad the logic yeah, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and why. I mean, yeah, we just need to have a more substantive conversation about you, the pros and cons right. and the trade offs. You know what would be helpful? It would be. And, Super helpful to know what teachers themselves think about these kinds of issues. Wouldn't it though? But a gene. Mm. You guys are stay tuned, listeners. Stay tuned for more on that. Especially teachers in high poverty schools. That would be great to know. Someone should ask them in a scientifically rigorous way. Okay. I don't have a bandwidth for it. All right. Well, very good, interesting stuff. Thank you so much, Amber. Yes, indeed. Uh, You know, I I look. I I usually it's more fun listening to about studies that where something works than maybe doesn't work as intended but this is important this is part of how we learn it is um, indeed to get better all right that's all the time we've got for this week until next week i'm david griffith and i'm mike petrilli at the thomas b fordham institute signing the education gap life show is a production of the thomas b fordham institute located in washington dc for more information visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org